from Asur, we get Asur or Sur. Ah. Sur, so that the first syllable is so uh, dropped. Uh -huh. So that from Asuraya, we get Suraya. And from thence, we got the Syriac Suroyo. Hi friends, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Steve, and as we begin this episode, I want you to go back with me to around the year 1960, when everybody is excited about this discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these ancient biblical texts are being explored. Well, at that same time, there's a guy in Finland. He's not Assyrian, yet he decides he wants to dedicate his entire life to focus on the ancient Assyrians. As he does that, he discovers the modern-day Assyrians, and he's quite astounded. Around 60 years later, he wins a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Assyrian National Policy Conference in Washington, D.C., where I was fortunate enough to attend and sit down with this living legend, Dr. Simo Parpola. You can't make this stuff up. Simo has published works upon works upon works and has changed the game for ancient and modern Assyrian scholarship forever. As you listen to this interview, stop and think. This is someone who decided to dedicate their entire life toward their passion, which happened to be the Assyrian people. You'll hear the passion in his voice and the love in his heart for the Assyrian nation, both ancient and modern. Thanks for joining us today, and before we roll the interview, I want to remind you how helpful it is to us when you subscribe and review the podcast. I'd also like to challenge you to find one other person and get them subscribed as well. We want more and more Assyrians to be a part of our worldwide community of listeners. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we post all of our updates, and you can connect with other Assyrian listeners. Aside from being streamed on the iTunes app and on the Google Play Store and Stitcher, we're also streaming all of our episodes on Spotify, so there are multiple ways for you to find us and listen to the past episodes and catch up. Lastly, a huge shout out and thank you to our sponsor, John O'Shauna from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John O'Shauna Real Estate Professional at 209 968 9519 on Facebook at John O'Shauna Realtor or at John.Oshauna on Instagram. And now here is Dr. Simo Parpola. Born and raised in Finland. Yes. And so at some point in your life, you dove into the Assyrian culture and heritage and history. What took you there? Yes. Well, I must uh, begin by saying that I was not originally interested in the Assyrians at all. I was more interested as a child in uh, Mesoamerican civilizations, like the Mayas, the Aztecs, and so on. I had a dream of deciphering the Maya script. Well, I nourished this dream until uh, my, you know, stool times were over. But then I had to decide seriously about my life. Uh, I realized that it wouldn't be possible for me to pursue uh, Mesoamerican studies in Finland, really, because we had no chair for that, no place to study it there. I would have had to go right away to Germany, for instance, mm -hmm. in order to do that. So I, I 
had a serious uh, thought about what I'd like to do because I was fascinated by history. And so I decided to do Assyriology because we had a chair in Helsinki and my own uncle happened to be the professor of Assyriology. I don't have any Assyrian ethnic background. But your uncle was a professor. Yes. Well, my uncle and my grandfather, who was a missionary, missionarian, had a passion for Assyriology because he felt that Assyriological studies might help, you know, to us to understand the origins of Christianity and so on. So I had a vested interest in Assyrian studies since my childhood, but as I said, originally my passion was elsewhere in the Mesoamerican studies. But when I decided that, you know, I have to do something with my passion with history, I decided to enter Assyriology and very seriously, because my family, my father and my mother were very much against by becoming a Assyriologist. Why? Because they, because they thought that I should do something that is worthwhile. That is to say, become a doctor, medical doctor. I see. Yeah. Or a lawyer, or an engineer. That is to say, uh, choose a profession that uh, would bring with itself some financial profit, things like that. And they tried to convert me. I had a uncle who was a Dutch surgeon and very wealthy man. I remember he took me for a ride with his uh, convertible. I was allowed to drive the car and he made a preach. He he preached strongly against my conviction. Uh, Said, wouldn't it be a little bit selfish, you know, you are uh, developing your, your own passions and not thinking about mankind at large, so that you could, like us doctors, do well to mankind, to save lives, etc. Well, I, I told them that everybody has not only just one life, and I think it's not too much to ask that you can do with it what you like. You know, so, and I, I told him that I'm quite prepared to live in poverty if I uh, follow my conscience and do what I judge to be right. So this was the really the decisive moment because when I chose Assyriology, I was determined to show other people that you can do anything you like in your life if you do it with a pure heart and doing your best. And what's it like for you now, all these years later, looking back at your work, how it's inspired so many other new scholars to enter into Assyriology? Well, I feel that, you know, I have, as I said, I have followed the voice of my conscience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel that I have indeed achieved quite a bit, you know, for instance, in terms of publications, making the Assyrian culture known, mm-hmm. uh, not only uh, to general public, but to Assyriologists as well. Because when I started, uh, Assyrian studies were quite a neglected field mm-hmm. of Assyriology. Everybody was uh, studying uh, the old Babylonian times of Hammurabi, Mari, the Sumerians, or the Akkadians. Why weren't Assyrians being studied? Because they thought 
as, uh, that, for instance, Assyrian language has no grammar. That is just a degeneration of the Babylonian language. That, uh, you know, the Neo-Assyrian language has no grammatical rules. This is what I heard from several colleagues. Wow. And which is of course total nonsense. Yeah. Yes. But there you can see what people's attitudes can be when uh, they don't know enough about the subject they are talking about. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And so you saw through that, you found the grammar in that field to get to know Assyrians from that perspective. And that has been this driving motivation in helping you to kind of do that work. Yes. Well, for me, becoming an Assyriologist was a challenge. But I like, I love challenges, you see. Because uh, only through facing the challenges, you can improve yourself. And there was a sense of justice inside of you that said, you know, hey, there's this ancient people group that no one is interested in, and yet they're a part of humanity as well. Would, you, would that resonate with you? Uh, yes, well, uh, I must admit that I did not know anything about uh, modern Assyrians when I started my studies. Right. Yes. Nevertheless, uh, I had an urge to do something, you know, worthwhile with my studies. I want to, wanted to prove my parents and other people <laughs> too that it was not a stupid choice and uh, that uh, there was still a lot to discover in Assyriology and a lot of things that had to be cleared up. Uh, I very soon noticed that uh, the field of Neo-Assyrian studies, that is to say the time of the Assyrian Empire, had really been very much neglected since the early days of Assyriology. Of course, they had, in mid-1800s, uh, they had found Nineveh and all the magnificent large archives, royal archives of Nineveh. But for almost 100 years, you know, nothing had happened with those in the archives? Yes, with the investigation oh of those archives. Why is that? It was because uh, with time, other archives, cuneiform archives were discovered. And of course, the, uh, the number of Assyriologists in, in the world is not great. We, there are only a few hundred people who can actually decipher cuneiform yes. texts. So the interest shifted from the Ninevite archives, which had helped tremendously in deciphering the Assyrian language and writing, etc., earlier on. But a part of it had been investigated, translated, etc. So the feeling was that now we have to concentrate on other things. And of course, uh, there were other, other reasons like uh, the word wars, the right. two world wars, right. etc., yeah. which uh, prevented, I mean, uh, real uh, scientific work yeah. all over. But when I think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, those things have been scoured. And it's because it impacts how we read the Bible. Yes. So maybe the piece there for Assyrians is when you get to know the ancient Assyrians, you actually get to know the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures in a whole new way. That is very correct. That is exactly my point, in fact. You see, when the Ninevite archives were under focus, uh, the first thing, of course, was to translate the royal inscriptions, the monumental inscriptions that were that decorated the palaces, etc. 
which is of course a very very important source historical source but at the same time we have much more important source material like the Ninevite, Ninevite royal archives the royal the correspondence yes the library the royal correspondence everything tens of thousands of texts and these really had been extremely badly treated uh, for instance almost one half of the royal correspondence had never been uh, edited at all i mean they were not uh, the texts had not been published not even in a cuneiform copy, hand copy. So they're just uh, sitting not to speak there. of. They were just sitting there. Nobody had read them. They were barely catalogued, and uh, even that was done not very competently, so that uh, many pieces were wrongly classified. I was, as a student, I was fortunate to work with uh, a very able scholar, uh, the German Karlheinz Steller who was a professor at the Pontificio Instituto Biblico in Rome. And he had been um, committed by Chitado Assyrian Dictionary Project to do this copy and, and decipher these unpublished mm -hmm. parts of the correspondence. And I became acquainted with, with him the next year when I had started my studies oh, uh, okay. in Rome. So and, very and, young, very yes, young. And I, was, oh, I, was only, I was only 19 years, you know, when I met with him. Yeah. And uh, we started a joint project, can you imagine? I mean, he had faith in me. It was my, my teacher in Helsinki, Jussi Aro, recommended uh, me to him. And he had uh, read uh, one of my study papers on uh, unpublished uh, Neo-Assyrian letters from Ashur. That's a right. Small, a small group of commercial letters, which had not been translated already before. So we devised a joint project that we would, you know, realize together, uh, leading to the publication of republication or the publication of the whole archive. So and that was the beginning. And that's how the archive got started. Yes. So you are a pioneer in this field, and, and that's how we all know you, because when we do the research, you can't find too many more folks who have, have published these articles. And when I've looked at your work, one of the things I've seen that you've also been passionate about, Neo-Assyrian Empire, for so many people, 612 BC is when it's over for the Assyrian people. And I even have had uh, professors say, no, Assyrians, you know, they no longer exist. They got conquered. We all read it in the Bible. Tell us about, for you, what you have found post-612 BC about the Assyrian people. Yes, well, of course, the Assyrian uh, dynasty that had lasted for uh, 1,500 years was beaten. I mean, in, 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 uh, with the... Uh, destruction of Nineveh, but uh, of course the Assyrians were not wiped out from the face of the earth by no means, because you must bear in mind that the Assyrians were the mightiest nation in the, in, in the world at that time. 20 million. And, uh, I would say my, uh, my uh, uh, guess is that they were about 50 million people at the time. In any case, uh, you know, what happened was that actually nobody outside Assyria 
uh, made, uh, I mean, caused this fall of the empire. It was an internal power struggle. And the Neo-Babylonians, say Nabopolassar and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, who actually were the architects of Assyrian's fall, they had been earlier on Assyrian governors, mm. you know, in Babylonia. Yeah. They were part members of the Assyrian ruling elite. Of course, they had their Babylonian ethnic identity, but they were still Assyrians. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with the Medes. You know, they had been uh, uh, acted as Assyrians governors yeah. in media, so and they had, you know, been educated in Assyria, uh, participated in the campaigns together, etc., absorbed all the knowledge, all the and then the they education. Revolted. Then they revolted because, uh, of course, it was partially uh, their ethnic background. Uh, they saw that this mighty empire was ruled by the ethnic Assyrians. They were conscious of their own, own ethnic background, of course. And, of course, they, what you always do in situations that they ask themselves, why them, why not us? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, one thing I've always thought, though, is that what made Assyria mighty in the ancient world is that it was an ideology centered around the supreme god, Atur. Now, that wasn't working for those people, for uh, the Babylonians uh, and the Medes. I wouldn't say so. Uh, they were not interested in, in really interested in religion. They were interested in power. And uh, what they did was just you know, annihilate the Assyrian ruling class as well as possible, as far as possible. They didn't succeed completely, not at all. But, uh, and grab power in their own hands. So you uh, know that uh, they divided the realm and the western part went to the Babylonians and the eastern part went to the Medes. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't have ruled those areas without the empire let's say, its officials, its bureaucracy, its know-how, its civil servants, right. uh, its administrative system, etc., uh, its ideology that was the basis of Assyrian power, etc. So what they did was just adopt everything and, and apply it to your own needs. So modify it a little, give it a little bit of Babylonian decoration mm -hmm. or medium yeah. that, uh, to legitimize their own power in the eyes of their supporting forces. Yeah. And, and, you know, from that point on, everything went on as before. So, yeah, uh, so it was I, a I, see, I, see, I see absolutely no real difference between the empires that followed after Assyria, they were still Assyria. And in fact, uh, the contemporaries saw the thing exactly this way. I mean, the Greeks, ancient Greeks, who knew the Assyrians from the time of the empire, mm -hmm. the Jews, the neighboring people like the Egyptians, the Armenians, etc., they continued regarding 
the Babylonian and Median empires, and after that the Persian empires, as the empire that those people had inherited from the Assyrians. And very often they still called them Assyria. For instance, uh, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Seleucid, Seleucid Empire mm -hmm. is still referred to as Assyria. <laughs> so, so. Th so there's a recognition that the, the path that was laid by the Assyrian people, even when other regimes took over, was still Assyrian. Yes. And uh, you must bear in mind what happened after the fall of Rome, for instance. Uh, the East Roman Empire, I mean, was still Rome mm -hmm. in the eyes of the Near Eastern people. And, uh, of course, the Roman Empire still lives on in the Western country, I mean, Western political systems. For instance, the, uh, the Romans took over their, I mean, imperial power uh, from the East. Say they adopted the patterns created by the Hellenistic empires and applied them to their own use. They even had uh, Chaldeans working in their imperial courts. Chalde who, sorry, Chal Chal Chaldeans. Chaldeans is the classical, that is a uh, Greco-Roman term for court scholars. Okay. Yeah. Ad advisors of the king who are uh, who were experts in mathematics, astrology, and yeah. so on. I mean, what it really means is the dynasty, local dynasty, that took power in Babylonia after the fall of the empire. Uh, but it has nothing to do uh, with, you know, science. The science itself is the Mesopotamian science that. I mean, the later empires inherited from Assyria. As, and for instance, I, I, I must make a digression because now I see that the term Chaldean is then misunderstood by the Assyrians. Of course, the Chaldean church of Assyria has nothing, nothing to do with the Chaldeans who destroyed the empire, the Chaldean rebels. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is just a term for the Catholic Church that split off the Assyrian Church of the East in the 17th century. It's still a mystery to me why they chose that word. And because in that time, Chaldean was, a, I mean, a term for the Aramean language. Got it. Yes. So since the Assyrians were speaking Aramite, and still are, Yeah. I mean, uh, that term was used to denote this denomination that split off and became Catholic mm -hmm. to distinguish it from, uh, I mean, give it the term within the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, this, this was the Aramaic branch of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So that actually raises another question for me, and you are the perfect person for this question. The word otur. What does that mean? Remind us, what does Atur mean in the first place? Well, <laughs> it means, it, 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 we don't know what it means. But it was uh, the name of the city uh, and the name of the god, uh, whose city it was, you know, uh, the main city of the god. 
the main, main god of the city uh, from the earliest references to Ashur that we have in our cuneiform sources that date back to uh, about 2600 BC. Okay. So we don't know what the term means, but of course we know very well, you know, uh, what it referred to. Uh, it referred to uh, the city god uh, uh, who, who was uh, from the earliest times worshipped uh, or associated with uh, uh, the mountain or the mountain ridge uh, on which the city of Ashur had been founded. In, in, in that sense, uh, it was a sort, uh, quite a bit similar to the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of the Jews, mm -hmm. who was also associated with the mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, another <laughs> well-known gods like the Greek gods who had their home in on Mount Olympus. In any case, uh, the city god was uh, very closely associated with the city. Yep. And the ruler of that city got his legitimation from the Lord. Now, from the earliest times, uh, uh, Assyria was a merchant city. And because of it was a merchant city, it profited from the trade from the Sumerian south to Anatolia, and it grew very rich on the road. And, and uh, so after the fall of the Sumerian Empire, when Ashur had been a province of, of uh, first of all, the first Akkadian Empire and then the Ur III Sumerian Empire, it became independent and since it had had a local dynasty for a very long down, it got ambitious, very ambitious, and, and this led to the uh, birth of the first Assyrian Empire of Shamshi Adad, which uh, dominated large parts of the ancient Near East. Anyhow, uh, in the during the time when the first, I mean, when Assyria first existed, and during the time of the first Assyrian Empire, this phonological, first phonological shift uh, took place. That is to say, Ashur turned to Athur, as Assyria or Ashur is known in the Aramaic, earlier, Arama, earliest Aramaic sources. From Ashur, we get Athur, Athur, a little change. And, and later on, uh, about 1100 BC, uh, we got another phonological change from Asur to Asur. Asur. So from Tha, yeah. you get S, Samech. And uh, then during the Assyrian Empire, a third phonological change took place in this word from Asur we get Asur or Sur, ah. the sur so that the first syllable so is uh, dropped, uh -huh. so that from Asuraya we get Suraya, and from thence we got the Syriac Suroyo. So all of these phonological shifts are simply coming from the same source. Yes, 
That is to say, it is the name of the god, supreme god of Assyrians that appears in all these names. And we know that that name comes because there was a king who ruled over a city named Atur. Yes, yes. I, I think the Assyrian nation is so grateful for your work and all that you've done. Well, of course, I'm very happy if that is so. Because as I, as I said, I have dedicated my life to my passion, which I wanted to uh, realize. And I wanted to really to achieve something of lasting value. And if this has been served you, you know, as a nation even, then how would I be more happy? Thinking back to being 18, or 16 or 17 years old and when you went off to college making that decision and having those family conversations would you do anything differently no no and I I would say that uh, you know of course the older I grow the more you know I uh, am interested in what the younger people do and I have been following the fortunes of the Assyrian people during the, I mean, all the time that I have been in this business. And I have felt sorrow, great sorrow, you know, for your people. But I have been, on the other hand, I have been extremely happy about this younger generation of Assyrians. I mean, not forgetting the older ones, those who have also been awesome. I mean, in preserving Assyrian heritage. But this young generation is so, so smashing, really, in every respect. I have the highest regard for them. And I also hope, of course, very, very badly that they will follow their calling and, and you know, change the fortunes of the Assyrian people now that I hope it will become possible. And your work as a pioneer has changed everything for all of us. I mean, it really has. To be able to look at the work you've done, the archiving, the, the articles that you've written, and then to be able to reference those and build a case and try to build that case in, in truth. Yes, that's most important. And I, I can say you have been doing it extremely well. Look at, for instance, the Wikipedia articles on the, on the Assyrians. There is a world of difference mm -hmm. what was available before that. And you have trapped on what I have done, and you have taken it much further, and you improved on it. And you retired a few years ago. Yes. What's life been like since you retired? Well, I must say, I mean, you mean life in Helsinki, or, yeah. or my life. Your life. I have continued my research. Uh, not so much on Assyrian matters now, but on, on a different subject. Of course, I, my interest in Assyrians continues, and uh, we, we have been, I, I've been happy and proud that we have been able to publish many more books on the Assyrians. And I intend, you know, offering uh, uh, young people opportunities to publish their dissertations on these things that are very important uh, since, as I said, the area is still very much open for further study. Yeah. And uh, so 
I don't know how longer I myself will be able to do that, but uh, I'm confident that uh, and hopeful that uh, other people will continue the work and hopefully also the Assyrians will be, you know, taking a larger part in it. Yeah. Um, once again, thank you so much for being on the Assyrian podcast. And one of the things I like to ask people as we close the podcast is if you could say one thing to all Assyrians all around the world, what would you say to them? Well, I would say to them that you must unite because everywhere, uh, no matter to what denominations of Assyrians you belong, whether Syrians, Chaldeans, etc., you are be, being marginalized. Nobody listens to you except your own community. And uh, the only way to get out of this situation is to unite your forces. After all, you are a big nation, still decimated, but still big and strong, even in the diaspora. And uh, think about the Jews. I mean, the Jews are united. And they have achieved what they have they achieved. Yes. I mean, I don't see any reason why you couldn't achieve the same thing. I mean, once you are united and combine your forces and your visions, your dreams will be realized. And I know we're going to close, but you made me think of something I have to say, which is your research has shown you that these people, even though their name has augmented, they're all one people. And now you're, we're looking at a world where this name has uh, caused us to go against each other in ways. Yes. And you're, as a, especially as an uh, academic, you're looking at the facts. Yes. Well, I can say that the name issue, of course, is important because there are names that have associations with them. And uh, these associations have a tendency to last for generations. Now, I think that uh, there is no reason to forget about these names because they are part of your history. They carry remembrance of all the sufferings that your people have uh, undertone because in the final analysis, they were not adopted by you yourself, but they were largely the result of the Assyrians being subjugated, mm -hmm. first of all to Dreads, for instance, uh, there's no reason to abdicate that part of your history. We'll take that to heart. I mean, we all want to unite, and I think greater education will help. And I yes. know that the, the younger generation, we're not as hostile. By the way, did you read the news items recently that there are also Muslim Assyrians? Yes, I've heard yes. that. Yes. yes. So, I think I think religion should play a, a smaller role in in today in in modern times than it did, because earlier on, uh, still a generation ago, it was a, a more like a dividing. Force like than unifying. But the ancient Assyrian Empire, how many different religions did it have? It had huge, uh, many, many different religions, but they were all part of the relig imperial religion, mm -hmm. which had just one god. You know, all these other gods were accepted as his manifestations to mankind. The 
Assyrian god, I mean Ashur, he was, uh, he was not in this world. He was outside. I mean, he was, he, he was beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. He had created the world where he manifested in different forms, which were then worshipped as gods. But you see, the basis of the uh, uh, Assyrian religion is unity in multiplicity. Let's say there is just one God, the Assyrian king is pointing to the winged disc, you know, that's God. Just one God in a plurality of manifestations. So they were not mutually exclusive, but a, a song in the glory of God. Okay. Say that you can, you know, perceive God in a myriad of different ways, but it's still the same God. And the Assyrian Empire itself was, you know, unity in multiplicity. It was, it was composed of so many different uh, ethnic elements. These different ethnic elements did not, you know, exclude themselves. They could retain their ethnic identities if they wished. There was no, no repression against different right. uh, eth eth ethnicities. Uh, but they were at the same time also Assyrians. Mm -hmm. These two things are not mutually exclusive. You can be a loyal Iraqi, you can be a loyal US citizen, but still be an Assyrian. Yeah. I can be an Assyrian, even though I am a Finn. I have two identities. They are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. They complement one another, and in that sense, I would say that the, you know, the, the diversity of the Assyrians now, it's a richness mm -hmm. rather than, rather than you know, a distraction. And, and also the you know the mutual respect of what is different. Mm. Different. We have to learn to appreciate to, yeah, the differences. To appreciate it. Yeah. And you know, when you are united. You get to know each other better. You know why these differences are there, and uh, why it is so important to stick to them still for the people, you know, who have grown up in different so uh, societies. Yeah, in in some ways, it's uh, United States of America. There's Californians, there's Texans, there's New Yorkers, and at the end of the day, they know they're all Americans. They're yes. all part of the you know, United States. And when I think of ancient Assyria, it, it seems to me that there were lots of different groups, but they were all under sort of one umbrella. Yes. <clears throat> you see, uh, I have made some, uh, you know, studies of the ethnicities, different ethnicities there, and look at, uh, you know, how they developed during the imperial times. And it is quite interesting to see that uh, many, you know, people who had been deported from their homelands, you know, they behaved just like the modern U.S. citizens, you know. Uh, when you are an immigrant, you retain your identity strongly, and you give your children uh, <laughs> names that, I mean, are dear to you, your heritage. Uh, when, when then the children get Americans, like you, and then it doesn't matter so much, you know, how you call your children, because you are already an American, besides being 
being a, a Syrian. A, a Syrian. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it doesn't matter so much. You can get, you can marry an American of a different origin, yeah. ethnic origin, and so on. So it is quite uh, interesting to see, you know, how the <laughs> new Assyrians who have been deported from elsewhere, you know, develop in the same way. They give their children Assyrian names or Jewish names, whatever, you know. So you it can is, see the same thing it's happening. Same, exactly. Yeah. And this this went on for several generations. Oh, okay. So they were really, I mean, Assyrians, while being, you know, have the, having their Irish origins, etc. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. And I hope we can do it again. And you never know, maybe I'll see you in Finland. Well, maybe we can make another interview in five years from now and see what's happened meanwhile. Yeah, and hopefully there'll be a lot of good things happening. Yes, so. exactly. All right, Simo, it was a pleasure. It was an honor to be with you. Thanks. Thank you.